The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. in the Tian Shan Mountains of Kazakhstan in Central Asia, apple trees grow in the wild. These native apple trees have been thriving here for thousands of years. In ancient times, they provided food for nomadic tribes, for bears and for birds. And while empires in this region would rise and fall, these wild apple trees, today classified as Malus Siversii, survived. As it turns out, the Malus Siversii apple trees from Kazakhstan are the ancestors of all the apples that we buy in our shops today. Now, how did that happen? Well, over a thousand years ago, travelers and traders enjoyed the fruit and brought the seeds back home with them, hoping to plant these apple trees in their communities. The seeds went from Asia to Europe and in Europe, these trees were hybridized with native crabapple trees. Those native crabapples were called Malus sylvestris, and they were also hybridized with other species over the years. So pretty much all of the apples we find in our shops and supermarkets today are the descendants of this mix of species. So we know that Malus siversii originated in Kazakhstan. And we know that Malus sylvestris was native to Europe. But what about North America? Do we have native apple trees too? The answer is yes. And that's one that, and that is what we are going to talk about on the show today. My guest is Paul Crone, a researcher from the Plant Population and Evolution Research Lab at the University of Guelph in Ontario. And he will tell us about native apple trees. We'll explore how they're different from domesticated apple trees, and we'll also talk about how you can identify them. 
But first, I want to hear from you. Do you have any native apple trees near you? Are you interested in planting or propagating native apple trees? Email us during the live show with your comment or your question, or just to say hi, and we'll enter you into this month's contest. This month's prize is a copy of Preserving Wild Foods, a modern forger's recipe for curing, canning, smoking, and pickling by Raquel Pelzel, valued at $19.95. So email us right now at instudio101 at gmail.com and remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. That's instudio101 at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. So now welcome Paul Crone to the show today. Thank you for joining me. Hi Susan, uh, thanks for inviting me. So I'm excited to hear how you describe the difference between like what what is a native apple tree? How is it different from domesticated apple trees or even wild or feral apple trees? Okay, um, so I'll start just by quickly saying that the, so the apple tree you've just described coming out of Asia with the Malcerversii as its ancestor. It's what we now call Malus domestica. It's the domestic apple we're all familiar with. Um, we grow them obviously in orchards and our yards and that. And it's usually cultivars that we have names for like Macintosh and Northern Spy. Um, <clears throat> these trees will sometimes, uh, seeds from these trees will escape into the wild and start growing along fence rows and fields and just the edges of people's property. Um, and since they're no longer cultivated, we call them feral apples. They're basically wild apples in the sense they've escaped from cultivation. Now that's different from the native uh, crab apple, which is uh, Malus cornaria, which is an actual separate, completely separate species that's native to North America and um, grows in similar sorts of habitats as uh, the domestic apples that escape from captivity. So they tend to intermingle with them out there in the wild. So you talk about these these feral apples that escaped from captivity. Boy, we're so mean. We we keep our apple trees in captivity in orchards. Um, is it possible that some of these um, feral apple trees are also also include some of the genetics of the native apple tree? Maybe we have all sorts of native apple trees out there. Well, we one of the questions we we were interested in in our lab was whether once these uh, domestic apples escape and become feral, do they hybridize with Malus cornaria? And do we get hybrids between the two? And the answer is partly yes and mostly no, um, because we do find uh, um, some, we have found at least one tree that's definitely a hybrid between the two species. But uh, in all the trees we've tested out there, we generally um, don't find any evidence that there's any major hybridization going on between domestic apples and uh, the native crab apple. Okay, well, we have a quick email here from Julie Ann. Julie Ann says, just saying hi and thank you for doing this show. I'd like to be entered into the contest. And Julie Ann is from Scarborough, Ontario. And let's see, is there another email here? No, I think that's it for the moment. So, Okay, so we know that these native apple trees exist. Are there lots of them? Like, how come people don't know about this? In fact, you know, sometimes when I put on the internet, hey, you know, we're going to learn about native apple trees and people say to me, no, 
there's no such thing as a native North American apple tree. Why is there that misconception? Um, well, first of all, in Ontario, there is one species of native apple tree, the one that I've mentioned, the Mel's corn area. In the US, uh, there's, um, there's two other closely related species to Mel's corn area. And uh, out west on the west coast, there's another species called Mel's fusca as well. Um, but the reason people, I think, generally don't know about them um, is because in Ontario, they're, they're a Carolinian tree species. So you see them in, uh, in Norfolk County and Essex County, um, down around uh, the Niagara Peninsula. But uh, generally, the farthest north they occur is Cambridge, London, Burlington possibly some along the lake shore in Toronto, although we haven't confirmed that. So first of all, they're, they're restricted to very southern Ontario. And um, also, they don't seem to be terribly common. Um, and I think the third factor is if you, um, if you don't spot them when they're flowering in the spring, you're not going to spot them at all because they're, they're just small trees. Um, usually don't get more than about 15 feet tall at the most, I would say, usually less than that. And the fruit in the fall is just small little green apples um, that people might not notice either. Interesting. So we got an email here from Sylvia. Sylvia is from Toronto. She says, hi, my name is Sylvia. I want to grow native apple trees. Thank you for your radio show today. So is that something that you, you know, do you know of a lot of homeowners and, and people who are actually trying to grow these trees themselves? Are there, you know, is it yummy fruit or what's the appeal? Um. I know that some people have said they use them for um, applesauce and cider and things like that. Um, they're very bitter, they're, they're sour and bitter. Um, so that's probably the only kind of use you'd have for them. Um, I can see how people would just want to grow them as a native tree. They have attractive flowers, for example. Um, uh, they aren't, again, they're, they're only hardy in in the southern regions of Ontario. So you probably can't push it too hard um, growing them farther north. Uh, and also, I'm not sure where you get hold of them, um, but <laughs> uh, I wouldn't recommend people just collecting seeds from trees if they find a tree in the wild um, and collect the seeds and grow them. There's a very high probability you're going to get hybrids in there. So you might not have an actual pure mouse corn area anyway. So. so we have an email here from Richard. Richard says, hello, I have a 30 tree orchard in the state of Virginia, USA. Is the native crab apple an acceptable pollinator for a domesticated apple orchard? Thanks so much. Now that's from Richard. Okay. Um, this is a slightly more complicated question than you might think, because um, in Virginia, um, probably it would be one of the other um, native species in that area, um, Malus ioensis or Malus, uh, I believe it's angustifolia. And um, uh, one of them, one of those species is diploid. Um, and the other ones are either tetraploid or a mix. And um, 
I guess I, sh I probably should explain that for a moment. Okay. Um, so dip, most, most uh, domestic apples are diploids, which means uh, for every gene, they've got two copies of that gene. One they got from their mother, one they got from their father. Um, and that's, uh, that's, a fair, that's the most common level of ploidy, we say. Um, crab apples, mouse carnaria are tetraploid, um, which means they have um, four sets of chromosomes, four sets of chromosomes uh, for every, they have four copies of every gene. So uh, they get two from the father and two from the mother. Um, the problem is when you cross a tetraploid and a diploid, um, the seeds are gonna be mostly triploid, um, which means that most of them simply abort and don't develop. And if the seeds aren't developing, the fruit's not gonna develop. So if you were going to use a native tree as a pollinator, you'd want to make sure it was one of the diploid ones. <laughs> Ooh, that's a little tricky. Okay, so yeah. that's something to research yeah. a little further. We might talk a little bit more about that soon. But yeah, with triploids, when you're choosing apple trees, often you're thinking, well, if it's a triploid, just don't even think that it's going to pollinate anything. Just think of it as a sterile tree. So yeah. you're watching out for those. Um, so I guess it depends where Richard gets the tree. He's got to make sure that it's going to be one that will be able to cross-pollinate. So that's a great question. Thank you very much for that. Um, we have a question from Jim and Nora, um, just saying hi, uh, listening from Oxford Mills, Ontario in Eastern Ontario. Um, they say, we seem to have a lot of feral apple trees which are growing along our fence rows between the different fields on our farm. How can we identify them? So let's talk a little, we're gonna talk in lots more detail about identifying feral trees or unknown trees a little later. So we can touch upon that. But first of all, can we determine that they're not native trees? How, let's, let's start with how would we figure out if these trees um, on the fence line are actually native apple trees rather than feral apple trees? What do they look like? Right, okay, so, um... Uh, the native crab apple is first of all it's a small tree so if you're if you're feral if you if your apple trees are large they look like a sort of a typical apple tree size it's probably not a crab apple it's not a native crab apple um, there's differences in the flower color um, the natives the mouse carnaria has a, a nice pale pink flower uh, whereas domestic apples are typically white flowers, although some have streaks of pink in them. Um, the crab apples are a little bit thorny. They're small blunt thorns, but you can usually find them. And also the uh, leaf shape is different where apple leaves are that basically an oval kind of a leaf with fine teeth around the edges. Um, the crab apples have at least some leaves that are almost lobed, three-lobed, and they have very coarse teeth on them. Now, if you go to our website, um, so I guess uh, if you go to uh, www.husbandlab.ca, um, and then there's a link for the Ontario Heritage and Feral Apple Project, if you follow that link, um, you'll see that uh, within our Heritage Apple Project uh, website, there's a there's a whole uh, page about mouse carnaria and it has pictures 
uh, showing the differences between the leaves and fruit and um, and flowers and everything uh, for domestic apples, mouse carnaria, uh, other crab apple species, hawthorns, things that people confuse with the native crab apple. So now part two of the question is, so let's say they've determined, no, their, their tree, they've looked at the pictures, their trees do not have those beautiful light pink blossoms that are so unique to the native crab apple. And I want to describe, it's just such a pretty pink. It's such a soft mm -hmm. pastel-y pink. You just don't see it on other apple trees, but they have these other, they, they're feral escaped from domestication apple trees. And I know we'll talk about it a bit more later, but how would they be able to identify, you know, is this uh, red delicious mixed with a uh, Macintosh or what is this? What are these trees? Uh, right. Um, well, we do, the genetic testing we do, um, it, uh, it, it can be used to match up uh, an unknown tree to a, a database of cultivars that we have. So we can identify, if, if the tree is actually a, a planted cultivar, we can often identify which one it is. Um, but if it's a feral tree that came up from a seed, it's going to be a mix of cultivars. Um, and in that case, we can sometimes uh, identify possible parents for it. So we might be able to say, well, your tree is probably just grew from a seed, but it looks like its mother was probably a duchess or something like that. So, so that's interesting. And, and hey, if the fruit is fantastic on these wild trees, maybe, you know, they can clip off branches, propagate it, make a million dollars with the newest Honeycrisp apple or whatever it is. So sure. yeah, why not? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got an email from John. Hi, Susan, enjoying the show. Interesting as always. Um, he says, up around Uxbridge, Ontario, I notice a lot of old apple trees along the edges of old farming properties growing along the side roads. They still bear and they look pretty hardy. So are these likely escapees? Or would the original farmers have planted these along the edge of the property? They're not typically near the farmhouses. Very curious about uh, Paul's thoughts on that. Thank you. And that's from John. Uh, it's a good question. Um, so far, our experience is if it's, if it's growing along a, like a hedgerow, a fence line, along the side of the road, chances are it's, a, it's an escapee. So it's not a cultivar. Um, we, I have been told by one person who was sending us apples for testing that they had read about farmers sometimes planting apple trees on the edges of their property to save space. Uh, so it is possible that can occur, but so far we have seen, we haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, we had a student in our lab, uh, Dane Cronin, who did a project where he tested uh, oh, I forget now, I think about 600 feral apple trees uh, collected from along roadsides and fence lines. Um, and out of all of those, there was exactly one tree that was identified as an actual cultivar. And he was suspected that might have been a planted tree before he even collected it. So wow. uh, mostly they're, they're not cultivars. Yeah. Oh. So when people are talking about some of the people who are writing in, they may grow other types of um, apple trees or other types of fruit trees, 
Um, some people are interested in just planting native plants because it's, you know, it, it may be good for pollinators. It may be good for uh, native insects. Like, what are the advantages of having these these apple trees, these native apple trees, exist nearby, near us? Um, well, there's there's just um, the basic biodiversity um, argument that. Uh, more diverse ecosystems are healthier. And um, obviously there's a, always a desire to not allow a species to go extinct. <laughs> so just there's you know basic arguments like that. Um, in terms of um, uh, yeah, um, I think in terms of just sort of human use. Um, as I mentioned, some people do use them for cider and things like that. Um, but, uh, uh, sorry, no, I think I, uh, I was thinking also about the pollinators. Yeah, so um, it is uh, possible that uh, the native trees are providing um, resources for native pollinators, for example, um, but also these feral apple trees might be doing that as well. So there's there's different ways they can be uh, participating in the ecosystem, providing yeah. food for native species and, and also pollen. So we have an email here from Sue. Hello, Susan and Paul. Very interesting introduction today on your radio show. Eerie, love the, oh, Eerie, she's talking about the music. Yeah, it is kind of yeah. eerie, actually. I liked it. Uh, love the topic. Please enter me into the contest. Happy New Year to the both of you. And Sue is from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Thank you so much, Sue, to you too. Happy New Year coming up. Um, okay, finally, before we dig into some other genetic details, which I really want to sort of dip into with you, I want to talk about disease. Um, I know that sometimes when you go, like I have a ravine near me and you go into the ravine and you see that there are some feral apple trees there and they are covered with, you know, scab, various problems that would easily spread to my apple trees in my orchard, in my backyard, wherever. Um, so do these trees get those diseases or are they hardier than that? And are they actually magnets for those diseases? Would it be bad for me to plant a native apple tree near my orchard? Um, so there's a couple, I, there's two main points here I'd like to touch on. Um, uh, first of all, it is possible that in some cases the feral trees are more uh, resistant to some pests just because um, the ones that uh, uh, you, you're getting this real, real mix of traits when you produce uh, the apples from seed. And it's always possible you're going to get hardier ones, uh, more resistant ones. And obviously they would do a little better in the wild. So you're going to have a little bit of natural selection starting there um, where maybe the ones that are very, very prone to pests and diseases just die out quickly, for example. I don't know that we have any real evidence for that yet, but that's... Um, that's one thing. Um, the, uh, it's interesting, the question of whether you should plant them near your orchard, for example, is interesting because um, our, um, the uh, Ontario Ministry of Agriculture actually um, recommends that you cut down feral apple trees near orchards for that very reason that they could be harboring pests and diseases. 
And in fact, at one point when we talked to uh, someone from the ministry um, about the project we were planning of sampling tr feral trees along roads, they said, oh, you probably won't find very many because we tell people to cut them down. <laughs> and that clearly isn't advice that's being followed because they're really everywhere along roads and fence lines. So. Um, so there is, I think, an official recommendation that it might be a bad idea to leave feral trees in place um, for that reason. Hey, that feels, it feels very harsh. It's like, go look at the tree first. And if it's healthy and not, you know, like, hey, that's just kind of mean, actually. Um, I'm going to well, read and, one. Mm, sorry, go ahead. Um, and also, um, sure, they may harbor pests, some pests, and that, but they, they also support um, pollinators. So they could be also providing positive resources, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't know that I 100% agree with that little bit of advice, but we've got an email here uh, that I got earlier that I really want to share because Paul, you said, gee, I don't even know where people would buy a native apple tree. So I was on Facebook recently and got this fantastic um, lead and got an email from Jessica. Jessica is from the County of Wellington Green Legacy Program in Ontario. So Jessica wrote me when I asked her for some more information, and she says, the Green Legacy Program grows and distributes native trees and shrubs to residents of Wellington County, so they get these trees for free. Our native crab apple is just one of about 40 to 50 species in our inventory. We're encouraging residents to plant it because of its benefits to wildlife. Many mammals consume the fruit and the showy pink flowers are pollinated by bees. This is the first year we've had it available and it was so popular that we are already sold out. For more information on the County of Wellington's Green Legacy Program, you can go to www.greenlegacy.ca. So people are selling native apple trees. There is lots more to learn about it. But in the meantime, we're going to hear a few words from our sponsors. And I'm going to, Paul, you're okay staying on the line for a couple of minutes until we come sure. back. After the break, I want to talk about genetics. I want to talk about the mystery that surrounds these native apple trees. And this is quite amazing when we talk about it the mystery around these trees and how they reproduce. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But in the meantime, if you want to enter the contest today, our email is instudio101 at gmail.com. Now you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And we will be back right after this break. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. 
we stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. G'day gardeners, it's JJ here, your Aussie gardening expert. We all know young, newly planted trees need to be watered deeply and regularly to kickstart growth. But correct irrigation just isn't as easy as you would think. Sprinklers waste bucket loads of water and they wet the leaves and branches which can result in the spread of nasty fungal diseases. At Greenwell, we have a system to direct the water deep down into the soil to the roots of your trees where it's needed most. But watering takes time. So municipalities across North America, Europe and Australia are now saving time and money by using Greenwell water savers for newly planted trees. So why don't you? Dig the easy to install recycled plastic rings into the soil around your young trees. Then each week, you can fill the rings with up to 50 litres of water and that water filters deep down into the root system where it is needed. Think of Greenwell water savers as your insurance policy for young trees. Learn more at greenwellwatersavers.com. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Whiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, 
And I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. So in the show today, we're talking about apple trees that are native to North America. And these trees, of course, do not include the ones we're familiar with from the supermarket. Gala apples, Macintosh, Red Delicious, and all those other cultivars are considered domesticated apple trees, and their origin goes way back to Kazakhstan and Europe. But native apple trees have been here in North America for centuries and centuries, and we are talking about them today. Earlier in the show, we talked about how these apples look, and we talked a little bit about how they taste. But in this part of the show, I want to explore a little bit more about their genetics and the mystery around their reproductive cycle. And by the way, later in the show, we're also going to talk about how you as a homeowner, as an orchardist, can actually have your fruit tree, your apple tree identified to know precisely what it is, or at least what its parentage is. Is it a native apple tree? Or is it a descendant of one of the more common cultivars? But before we dig into the conversation, I would love to hear from you, the listeners. Do you have native apple trees nearby? Or do you have an apple tree that produces apples of an unknown variety? Write us an email right now during the live show and we'll enter you into today's contest. If you're the winner, we'll send you a copy of Preserving Wild Foods, a modern forager's recipe for curing, canning, smoking, and pickling by Raquel Pelzel, valued at 1995. So write us an email right now, send it to instudio101 at gmail.com. Remember to include your first name and where you are writing from. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. So I have Paul Crone with me who researches native apple trees. So Paul, let's go back to this story. I mean, what you do is you do a lot of research around native apple trees and their reproduction. What's the big mystery? What is the thing that you encountered during your research that you guys sort of thought, what's going on here? Okay. Um, uh, so the, the, the native crab apples produce a lot of different types of seed. And I'm gonna to have to talk to you for a moment about all the ways they reproduce in order to explain what the mystery is. <laughs> so um, as I mentioned before, um, in diploid plants, they get a they get a copy of each gene from their mother and a copy from their father. And the crab apples get two copies from their mother and two copies from their father if they're reproducing sexually. Um, because we get, um, but there's three processes that go on um, in, in crab apples that really create a, a dazzling array of outcomes. Um, one is that um, they hybridize with domestic apples, as we've mentioned. So you get um, combinations of the two, and most commonly those are triploids. Um, the other thing that crab apples do is they often produce um, eggs and sperm cells that have extra sets of chromosomes. So you get um, offspring that are, um, say, still all crab apple but they have more chromosomes than the parents did. So they have higher ploidy, so they could be hexaploid with six sets uh, or octoploid with eight. Um, and then on top of that, um, they can reproduce asexually. 
which is a really interesting process where the flower still has to be pollinated. Um, so there's pollen coming from another flower, uh, which has the male gametes in it. Um, but, and, but when the ovule is fertilized uh, and starts to develop into a seed, none of the male contribution is included in the embryo. So you get an offspring that has only the mother's DNA. And um, usually um, they are basically clones of the mother. They're genetic, genetically identical to the mother plant and they're tetraploid, just like the mother. So, and, but occasionally you get, uh, you even get seeds produced that are asexual, but only have half the mother's DNA. So they're diploid. So you have tetraploid plant producing diploid seeds, which is very weird. So uh, we look at the seeds from these native trees and what we see are diploid, triploid, tetraploid, pentaploid, hexaploid, octoploid seeds. And some of the tetraploid seeds are sexually produced. So they're a mix of two trees and some are asexually produced. So they're just like the mother. So there's all these different things going on. So we see all these seeds of different types but then when we test, genetically test all the adult trees, uh, what we see is they're almost all tetraploids that are all genetically identical to each other within the population. So first of all, we don't know where all these hybrid seeds are going because generally they produce about 25% hybrid seeds in the population we've studied the most. Um, uh, but we don't, we've only found one adult hybrid. And also, although they produce lots of tetraploid seeds sexually, because the whole population is genetically identical, it looks like possibly only the asexual seeds are eventually leading to adult trees. So we have these populations which look like great big clones. So, um, But that's incredible. Like the idea that it's funny, it reminds me uh, in an earlier show, I had an expert talking about aphids and how aphids can actually, they don't even need the male. They just, the, 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 the mother just produces lots and lots of little identical babies. The yeah. fact that these trees are the ones that survive in the wild are mostly identical clones. Now, often when a tree is endangered, it's because there's too much mixing going on. You know, it'll be so watered down that they'll never be a native apple tree. Does this mean that these native apple trees will be with us forever? They will never be endangered because they just like to produce the exact same thing over and over again. They're always pretty much identical. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't reach that conclusion, I think. I suppose that's possible, but the, the odd thing is that within a population, um, they're all identical. But then when you go to a different population, what we found so far is all the ones in that population are identical to each other as well, but it's a different genotype than the first population. Although weirdly enough, sometimes we'll be like miles and miles away and we'll find another population that has the same genotype as the first population. So there is variation within the species, just not within populations. So that suggests that it's not that there's one really super duper genetic type um, and they're all that way. There are multiple types of them out there, but just not within populations. 
Okay, so we have an email here from Carol. Hello, please enter me into your show contest. Hopefully Gary is taking note. Gary in the studio is taking note of who is sending in entries. We're going to find out who the winner is soon. So Carol asks, so the feral apple tree's main benefits are pollination and making cider, but don't add them to an orchard because of possible, possible disease infection. So I'm glad, Carol, you asked this question because were we, me and you, Paul, we were a little waffling on this subject. We're not, we're kind of not giving them an answer to this question. Carol wants an answer. Do you think you should put a native apple tree near your other apple trees or do you think it's not a good idea? Let's give her some answer. Um, I, don't, I don't know of any reason to say no to that. I think there's probably value in planting native trees generally. Um, and we don't know specifically of any harm they are gonna do to your orchard. Um, we always have to consider the possibility that they're, they might harbor pests or whatever. But on the other hand, maybe the benefits of, of, of helping out native bees will help the orchard as well. So um, yeah, I would say go ahead. <laughs> okay, you got the okay then, Carol. There's the okay from Paul. Now we have another email from John. Thank you for this, John. John from Toronto. Hi, Susan. Does Paul's organization do apple identification testing for urban apple growers? He'd mentioned a student had done tests to ID 600 feral apple trees, and I was wondering if they have a testing program you can send into. I have one apple scion on a five-in-one fan apple espalier that I don't know, I don't know what it is, he says. When I bought it, the label was broken off. I'm dying to know what it is. He says the four other apples are red, red Macintosh, Golden Delicious, Gravenstein, and Fuji. So it's that pollinator grouping. Is ID testing done on the scion wood, on the apple, or both? Thank you, John, because that's exactly what we're going to talk about next. So his question is, how can he get, how can he identify a mystery apple that, that is growing in his backyard? Okay, so we do have a program for that. Um, uh, if you go to our Ontario Heritage and Feral Apple Project website, uh, which I think is in the notes for this show, the link, um, then uh, there's, a, there's a page there called test, test My Tree, and it has all the instructions. Um, you, you have to collect leaves, uh, preferably in May and June when they're still in good shape. You dry them and you mail them to us, and uh, we will test them for you for a fee of $15 per tree. $15, that is so modest. That's such good value. So this for people listening from the United States, are there other this is in Canada, you will accept uh, your leaf matter to identify are there other services in the States where people can do this? Is it the same kind of price? Um, I don't know anything about price. I know that there are there are other groups starting to do this now. Um, there's a I was reading about a group in Seattle that's doing this. There's a group in Wyoming. Um, uh, I think there's something through the USDA now. Um, and I think there was another one, but I'm just blanking on what it was right now. So um, it does exist. Yes. It does it, exist. Yeah. Um, and there's one in the UK as well. So since John brought it up, let's talk about you need leaves. 
on your side in a simple way, like how, what do you do to figure out what do you do with these leaves? How will these leaves tell you what cultivar John has growing in his backyard? Or if I in my neighborhood have some mystery tree that's a mix of other things, how on earth are you going to know? So what are the steps when you get that dried, those dried leaves? What do you do with them? Okay, so the first step is we need to get the DNA out of the leaves. So there's a whole process for that where we follow a, a special recipe. And basically it starts with grinding up grinding up the leaves really finely and then uh, we go through a series of steps where they sit in different chemicals that break apart the, the nuclei and and uh, we we spin them in the centrifuge through special filters and and uh, I'll just sort of leave it vague like that and what comes out at the end of this whole process is a tiny bit of liquid in a tube um, that is uh, essentially it's a buffer with uh, with the tree's DNA in it um, the next step is we, um, we take the, the sample of DNA and we put it in a mix with uh, mainly two other things. Um, one is a, what's called a primer, which is a little bit of, um, of DNA sequence um, that's manufactured that tells, tells the, uh, the process that's about to occur what section of the DNA to look at. Uh, that's, Best way I can explain it. I, you um, know what? I kind of see it like like a bit of a magnifying glass. You're saying, okay, guys, ignore all the other information. We're just looking at for this little square right. of information. So you focus in on the information, yeah. and then what are you looking for? Well, and so then what happens is that uh, the process amplifies that little bit of that one section of the tree's DNA to make lots and lots of copies of it, and it attaches a little bit of chemical to it that glows under a special light. And then that's run through another special machine. Uh, sorry to be vague. I don't even actually remember what the name is of that last machine because it's done in a separate facility in our department. And what comes out at the end is information about what, what variations of that particular section of DNA um, that tree has. So there might be 20 different forms that that section of DNA could take. And it tells us which specific forms are present in that tree. And we do that for 14 different sections of the DNA. And in combination, we get what's called a 14 locus genotype that says this tree has these variants at the first locus, these at the second locus, these at the third locus, until we get all the way up to 14. Um, yeah. And so then once you have this kind of code, is there a big, like I can just see an old tome, a big, huge, heavy book that says, you know, Macintosh has these numbers and this code and Golden Delicious or Wealthy has another code. Is there a big sort of book or database where you look and you kind of look it up and you find out, oh, this has got a little bit of this and a little bit of that? Uh, yeah, it's, um, we have a database that has, um, our current database has, I believe, around 200 cultivars where we know the uh, 14 locus genotype for every one of those cultivars. And so we can compare um, the sample we've just tested for someone to, the, to all the trees in that database and see if it matches up to any of them. And if it doesn't match up, whether some of them could in fact be the parent of it. Um, there's also other databases out there. There's, there was one in the UK that we can access um, and we're hoping to get access to some in the US as well this year so we can keep expanding the number of trees we can test. 
So I'd love to know, like, what are the stories of who writes you? You know, is it like, you know, Bob Jones who writes you and he's got a tree? Like, have you ever had interesting apples with like lots of different parentage? Yeah, it's got a bit of wealthy. It's got a little bit of yellow, you know, whatever. Like, what is it? Golden banana or whatever. Like, have you ever had a really interesting specimen that was like, wow, this has a lot of parentage to it? Um, well, really, we can't... Uh... In terms of parentage, all we can really say is, um, can we identify one of its direct parents or two of its direct parents? But we, um, beyond that, we can't say much at this point. Um, we do, we have found some interesting results for people though, if you want me to describe those. Um, in, in addition to just being able to identify cultivars for people, we've done lots of that now. Um, we. Um, We've had some interesting results with identifying possible parents. And one example from, uh, there was a wonderful group of people up on St. Joseph's Island near Sault Ste. Marie who are, have been sending us samples for a local project they're doing there. And one of their participants sent a number of trees from their old orchard. And it turned out that as far as we could tell, none of them were actually cultivars. They were all probably had come up from seeds. They were first generation uh, seedling trees, um, but two thirds of them all had one parent in common, which was a rather unusual cultivar called Liveland raspberry. And so based on that, um, the fact that that cultivar doesn't usually pop up as a parent in feral trees, but this one area had two thirds of their samples uh, is pretty strong evidence that what was growing in that orchard before was Liveland raspberry. And all these seeds are probably the offspring of the original orchard. So sometimes we get cool results like that. That's yeah. very interesting. Or maybe there was just one live land raspberry tree, but it was very assertive yes. and sent its pollen everywhere. And it's very dominating, you know, but who I've never even heard of that cultivar. I've certainly never tasted it. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. So um, before we wrap up soon, actually in a minute, we're going to find out uh, who won the prize and Gary's gonna help us with that. But I just want to have a word from you. So much of your work is around this native apple tree. Mm -hmm. How important it is, it is it to you? Is it really important that everybody keep planting it and respect it and honor it and keep it forever? Or do you, are you not, are you a little non-committal about this tree? It's just something you're studying. Um, I guess uh, when we study it, um, it's sort of a neutral process. We're just trying to learn about, um, you know, what it's doing, uh, how it interacts with other species. And we don't make policy about um, what that means in terms of should we be planting more of them? Should we be, you know, cutting down feral apples, things like because they're hurting the native crabs or anything like that. We, we're just trying to understand the interaction. Um, personally, um, I would hate to see them go away. Uh, they're, they're, they are a, an interesting native species and uh, um, I'd miss them. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay, you'd miss them. That's good. So let's find out who won the prize today. So Gary has been keeping notes of who entered the contest. Gary, are you there? 
I am here. And before before we do that, there I think there's one more email that just came in. Can we enter that? So oh, I'm gonna yeah, send definitely. I'm, so hang no, on. Let's see, I haven't got it yet. What is the email, Gary? Hang do you want to read it? Uh, I'm gonna send it to you right now. Hang on, please. Great. Okay. So yeah, we want to enter that last person who just got in. And the email's coming over here. It's not like the old days when we were live in the studio. We're live. I'm not in the studio. I'm at home, so it'll take a minute until I get this email. Yep, nothing yet. Gary, do you want to read it for me? You might as well. Okay. It, oh, it, I got it. You I got, got it? it? Okay, got it. beautiful. Yay. Oh, this was pretty short email. Okay, you ready? This is an email from an unknown person, but we have that person's email address, so they could possibly win. And they say, enjoying the show. Thanks for sharing. Okay, so we have your email. So if you win, whoever you are, you could possibly win. I won't know your name to congratulate you, but let's hear. All right. So I have the magic bucket here. And Paul, you tell me I'm moving it back and forth. You tell me when to stop. Stop. All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Let me open up the paper. And it is Richard D. from Virginia. Yay, Richard. Richard, fantastic. Thank you. And Richard, you've won the prize. We're going to email you. And I remember you had an interesting question that we discussed up front. Uh, so you will get the prize and we will reach out and we'll get your address and we'll send it directly to you. So thank you to everybody who sent in your questions and your comments and just sent in an email to say hi. We so appreciate you participating. And thank you so much to Paul Crone for coming on the show to share this really interesting topic. I appreciate you coming in. Also because for so many years I had walked around with this misconception that there are no native apple trees. And so, you know, if there's one big moral I learned, it's that they are out there and we need to respect them. Yeah. Do you agree? Yes. I, I, <laughs> and I heard a yes, I agree. And there, Susan, so. I think we sent you just one more email. Oh, I don't know if you wanted to have Paul answer that. Okay. Last email. Okay, here we go. Hi, Susan and Paul. Growing up on the north side of Ganoke, Ontario, I was blessed to have four or five apple trees in the neighborhood. Two of the trees were 40 to 50 feet tall and always had the kids in the area climbing, harvesting, socializing, and playing around their root base, root base every fall. One of these grandmother trees was a crabby in my backyard, darn near a hundred years old. And I'm sure as it took two people to join arms to reach around its trunk. The other one was a pear shaped green apple, a 50 plus foot beauty. This was at least a hundred years old. Both trees are but a fond memory now. Oh my gosh, this is from Scott. Wow. Scott, what a beautiful email. And in a previous show, I was talking with an expert about pruning veteran, which is really old fruit trees. And you know what he said? He said, it's very important for us to be planting these full-size trees today so that tomorrow, you know, in the future, we will have big old trees like that. Right now, all the trees we buy are maybe on dwarfing rootstock, semi-dwarfing rootstock, 
But these memories that you have, let's hope that the next generation can have those memories too. Thank you so much, Scott, for um, emailing us. And I'm so glad we managed to squeeze in your email. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, we're going to wrap up the show today for now. Um, we know who our winner is. I also wanted to read you one more thing. I really love it um, for those of you who listen to the show. If you can go onto your podcaster and rate and review the show, it helps to tell other people who might want to listen that this might be a show worth listening to. But some of the reviews are very beautiful, and I want to share one with you. It's from Jen in Alberta who shared this review. She says, I enjoy listening to these podcasts, several of them over and over. Well done, Susan. The edible lunch was super creative and fun with the edible perennials episode. The elderberry episode has me planning to start an orchard in the next year or two. I would love to take your online course one day as well. Thanks for the great info. Best wishes, Jen from Alberta. Thank you so much to Jen for sharing. Thanks to all of you for rating the show if you can. And I look forward to seeing your reviews. And that's it for this month. But we will be back again next month with a great new show. It's a great topic for next month. So I hope to see everybody back here again. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, just go to orchardpeople.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn how to care for your fruit trees, go to orchardpeople.com slash workshops. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on realityradio101.com. I'm Susan Poisner, and thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time. listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.